Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski. And today, we're going to talk about a very rare disease, bronchiolitis. All right, obviously I'm kidding. You will all see bronchiolitis in spades this coming winter. It's a big deal. There are over 33 million global cases every year. And in the United States, it's one of the most common reasons, if not the most common reason for hospitalization in children under one year of age. You see a lot of ED visits, especially increasing over time in those kids under 24 months of age. And ultimately, it's a disease that will have a significant burden throughout the cold weather months and perhaps a little bit longer. So the goal of this podcast is to really talk a little bit about bronchiolitis and really get into depth in some of the evidence behind treatments. A special heartfelt thanks goes out to Drs. Todd Florin and Julia Freeman, who helped accrue a lot of the information that supports this podcast. So let's start talking out about exactly what is bronchiolitis. It's kind of like you know it when you see it. You know it's a kid who's got some snot and maybe a fever They've got some cough, they've got wheezing, they've got coarse breath sounds, and every five minutes you listen to them, they sound different. That's pretty much it. Ultimately, the signs and symptoms and severity of bronchiolitis typically peak around the fourth, fifth, and sixth day. And it's not a static peak. Sometimes kids look worse, sometimes kids look better. There's generally lots of rhinorrhea, a snotty faucet that you can't turn off. Kids have persistent cough, increased work of breathing, sometimes with retractions. You'll hear rails and or wheezing, and this can often lead to impaired feeding, need for oxygen, respiratory distress, or worse. The pathophysiologic effects of the disease can be felt both in the upper and lower respiratory tracts. So in the upper respiratory tract, You have the virus-infecting epithelial cells. Those slough off, and you essentially get snot. In the lower respiratory tract, the epithelium of those airway tubes is affected, leading to edema, mucus, and swelling. This impairs ciliary function. You've got infiltrative immune cells. So essentially, you have infection of the bronchioles, which is bronchiolitis. With that cumulative narrowing of the lower airways, you'll see compensatory signs in kids. So they'll breathe faster, they'll use accessory muscles, they'll have noisy, turbulent breathing. And I think it's important to explain these to parents. In my experience, it helps them differentiate from bronchitis, which Grandma Mabel might have had, and ultimately helps them understand why their child has the symptoms that they do. All right. So let's move on to talking about some of the specific diagnostics and monitoring tests that are available in bronchiolitis. And let's start with the ubiquitous pulse oximetry. It turns out that pulse ox, as you'd expect, ends up being a key factor in disposition and patient length of stay. But is it really helping us? There's no international consensus on what SAT levels are required for hospital admission. It may be different if you live at high altitude, like Denver, versus not. It's not really associated with uh, severity of illness. It's variable. Remember, SATs are averaged over the previous you know, 15 to 30 seconds, so they're not a moment-to-moment monitoring. And is it really considered the standard of care? Does a baby transiently desat to 89 but pop right back up when they're asleep mean that you actually have to bring them into the hospital? And 
Pulse Ox is really limited. You can have a poor signal because the kid has dark skin, they're a little dehydrated. Um, you can get a low reading in children because of the way the monitor's applied. It's distal to a blood pressure cuff, for instance. You know, they've got cardiac disease. And really, it's not as precise in the 70 to 90% range. You've got a plus minus 2% uh, margin of error. And the evidence is a little bit limiting. Studies from both Mallory and Shuk have shown that lower SATs make it more likely for the patient to be admitted. So even in a study where they falsely lowered or raised the SAT reading, this changed the decision regardless of any other clinical findings of disposition. And then infants stay hospitalized longer despite feeding and hydration going okay when the pulse ox read lower. So clearly this objective data that you can measure ultimately plays a large role in what we're doing with patients. And again, as I alluded to earlier, healthy infants have transient DSATs during sleep. You know, mild bronchiolitis with well-appearing infants do have transient DSATs to less than 90, some even lower than that. But really, it's probably not clinically significant. And don't even get me started on the home pulse oximeter, you know, with the concerns about accuracy of those readings. So in general, the AAP, per their 2014 guidelines, really recommends that, you know, giving oxygen if the SATs are less than 90 is probably a good idea, but transient DSATs, you got to look at the context and really consider whether or not that's important. And certainly, continuous pulse oximetry, well, the jury's out, but it may just keep kids in the hospital longer. All right, viral testing. The take-home point here is that if you clinically know that it's bronchiolitis, it's bronchiolitis. It does not matter whether it's RSV or human metanumovirus or some really cool virus only the hipsters have heard about. So it really doesn't help you predict outcome. So perhaps in the future, quantitative viral load and other specific studies may help. But right now, unless it's a complex chronic kid who's critically ill or you need it to differentiate from specific bacterial etiologies, do not get routine viral testing. RSV or not doesn't matter. Chest x-rays as well. Again, if you think it's bronchiolitis on your history and exam, well, the chest x-ray is likely to do that. It does lead to increased rates of antibiotic prescribing if you get a chest x-ray in a patient with bronchiolitis because you'll see little patchy areas of atelectasis, which then make you think, oh, that might be a focal consolidation. Let's go ahead and put them on antibiotics. So when should you get a chest x-ray? Well, if your exam and history are not consistent with bronchiolitis, if you've got a persistently focal exam after you listen a few times, a child with severe respiratory distress, or symptoms are progressing or not resolving like you'd expect them to, like if you think that it's myocarditis. Lung ultrasonography can be used to see bronchiolitis, but ultimately ultrasound findings can correlate with clinical findings. They're not necessarily reliable, and the clinical utility is not really known at this point. So treatment. And that's what most parents are, are concerned about with bronchiolitis, right? Most of you already know that suctioning is the mainstay of treatment. That snot faucet will not turn off, so you just have to do a good job of managing the snot. It will make it easier for babies to breathe and easier for them to feed. 
So nasopharyngeal suctioning helps. Deep suctioning is probably not beneficial. Ultimately, that may just keep kids in the hospital longer. Suctioning, as I mentioned, helps keep kids hydrated. So poor feeding and dehydration is a common complication of respiratory distress and bronchiolitis, and it definitely gets kids admitted to the hospital. You can have some kids that get hyponatremia because you get an SIEDH mechanism. Ultimately, if you can suction a kid with bronchiolitis and then get them to feed well and stay hydrated, then you can be reassured that they'll continue to do well at home pending uh, reevaluation as an outpatient. If you have to bring a child into the hospital for poor feeding and bronchiolitis, know that both IV and nasogastric hydration can work. If you do go the IV route, it's important to note that hyponatremia is a real concern, again, due to presumed SIADH mechanisms. And if you cause iatrogenic hyponatremia, it's probably because you used hypotonic fluids. So definitely don't use quarter normal saline. Perhaps start with half normal saline. And in kids who are hyponatremic, use 0.9% saline or normal saline. So now on to traditional respiratory treatments. And let's start with what used to be the old mainstay, albuterol. In summary, there is no benefit for inpatients or outpatients for routine use of albuterol in patients with clinical bronchiolitis. In outpatients specifically, per meta-analysis data from Gadomsky and Skrbani, there is no improvement in oxygen saturation, time to symptom resolution, or rates of hospitalization. So, the AAP currently recommends that you should not give albuterol routinely to children who have clinically characteristic cases of bronchiolitis. So how about racemic epinephrine? Well, based on clinical trials, and again from the Cochrane Collaborative, Hartling et al. from 2011, um, epinephrine was superior to placebo for short-term outcomes for outpatients, particularly in their first 24 hours of care. There weren't any differences in hospitalization rate between it and albuterol. It didn't change length of stay, and there was no evidence for effective use for racemic epinephrine for prolonged or recurrent doses in inpatients. So if a child is tanking quickly or having much more severe symptoms, it may be able to buy you time, but as a recurrent therapy or a therapy to reduce the risk of admission, racemic epinephrine is not recommended. What about steroids? So steroids, corticosteroids specifically, like prednisone or dexamethasone, show no decreases in rates of hospital admission, no difference in length of stay, and no substantial benefit in other outcomes of bronchiolitis. Now, there may be a role for combined epinephrine and corticosteroids based on some recent studies, but this was one single trial, and it merits further investigation. So right now, no kid with clinically characteristic bronchiolitis should get steroids. But, okay, what if the kid has a family history but not a personal history of asthma, and they're like a little bit older, and it's day three of illness? This is a pretty challenging question. And ultimately, we don't have the answer yet. So if you think the kid has bronchiolitis, you're probably not going to get a large benefit from steroids. 
and making the differentiation between reactive airways disease slash asthma and bronchiolitis is very clinically challenging, especially in children that are between the ages of two and three. So more to come in the future, I'm sure, um, when it comes to research and investigations into these children who have bronchiolasmiolitis, which, as you know, is a completely real and not made-up disease. Now, one of the newer therapies that's been studied, and I did an interview with Todd Florin on a past podcast edition of PEM Currents, is hypertonic saline. It's thought that this highly concentrated saline solution can add outward osmotic drive to get some of that fluid out of the lumen of the tubes. So ultimately, the evidence as we understand it right now in the emergency department is that there's not really a significant benefit, and it's not recommended by the AAP. Now, in children that are admitted, there is level B evidence, though there are inconsistent randomized control trials, that show that you may shorten the length of stay if the average length of stay is expected to be, and institutionally based, greater than 72 hours. So the benefit does outweigh the harm in those situations. For most patients, especially where you're only going to admit for a day or so, repeated doses of hypertonic saline probably aren't going to make a difference. Well, let's go ahead and move a little bit further afield. So macrolide antibiotics are actually starting to get some increasing thought about use in bronchiolitis. And you're like, okay, Brad, wait a second. Um, bronchiolitis is a virus, and giving a macrolide like azithromycin is not good because it's an antibiotic and antibiotics don't help viruses. Yes, I agree with you. But it's actually the anti-inflammatory effects that may show benefit in the future. So it's possible that these can reduce interleukin levels, decrease some wheezing episodes, or increase length of time between episodes. And these are smaller studies that have been published over the past few years. Thus far, there's been shown no improvement in length of hospitalization, use of oxygen, or even readmission rate over a short time period. So right now, despite some of the studies that are out there, the current guideline recommends that macrolide antibiotics are not recommended and the AAP does not support their use. So in the near future, we may see studies that indicate a stronger benefit for the effect of an anti-inflammatory drug. But why wouldn't that be something like ibuprofen? The answer is, we don't know yet, so stay tuned. Another potential emerging therapy is IV magnesium. We know that IV magnesium reduces the odds for hospitalization in asthma patients. And we think that, okay, maybe it just relaxes muscles around airways, but we really don't completely understand the mechanism. In three smaller randomized controlled trials, there was no overall change in length of stay. It may alleviate some symptoms, but at least in one study, there was an increased return to the emergency department. So the evidence doesn't support the use of IV magnesium in bronchiolitis at this time. And I talked earlier about SATs and oxygen, but what about delivery of oxygen, specifically high-flow nasal cannula? So your standard nasal cannula of oxygen, it's not blended, it's cold and it's dry, so when the flow goes up, it's not very tolerable. And ultimately can be uncomfortable for patients. High flow is humidified and warmed. It's well blended. The cannula sits differently in the nose, so it overcomes some of the dilutional effects in dead space. And that high flow will generate some positive end expiratory pressure and 
positive airway pressure. And when you look at the measurements, you get about five to seven millimeters of mercury of pressure based on human studies where they insert probes into the nasopharynx. So high flow may give kids some symptom improvement, but right now the evidence shows that there's no difference in the length of stay, adverse effects, heart rate, and some other findings. The work is currently ongoing. It has also not been shown to reduce the rates of intubation and bronchiolitis. So if you get a child that's in respiratory distress of bronchiolitis, absolutely high flow may be helpful, and it may temporize symptoms. If you have a baby with bronchiolitis that's apneic, well, that's a different story, and using high flow will not stave off or prevent that child from needing to be intubated. Because if they're having apneic spells and they're a tiny baby, then they're going to need an endotracheal tube. There's nothing that high flow can do for them at this point. So right now, there's no comment in the guidelines, but you better believe it's coming in the future. You may be able to alter the short-term course of the illness, but it certainly doesn't change what's happening on a pathophysiologic level. You could employ it in select cases as rescue therapy, and the flow rate matters. You generally want to do about one and a half to two liters per kilogram per minute. So that's a lot of therapies to consider, and certainly there's even more emerging things out there on the horizon. But what should you really do? Well, number one, take a good history, do a good physical exam, and repeat it. If this is clinically, classically bronchiolitis, then you have made your diagnosis, and you don't need a chest X-ray or viral testing to help you any further. When it comes to treatment, it's really still all about supportive care. Suctioning, adequate hydration, and oxygen to maintain SATs greater than 90%. Suctioning should be done via the nasopharynx. You can ask parents to get a nose Frida or other devices, and they should generally suction before feeds and before bedtime. Fluids, you gotta make sure the kid stays hydrated, and suctioning and eating go hand in hand. If they can't maintain orally, you can go either IV or NG. Just be careful about hyponatremia with IV rehydration. And be careful of those transient desaturations that occur during sleep. But if the oxygen saturation is persistently less than 90%, well, start O2. Some institutions, especially those in higher elevations, will do home oxygen. Look for local practice patterns to help guide you. Treatments that are not routinely indicated include albuterol, racemic epinephrine, hypertonic saline, corticosteroids, and antibiotics. Right now, none of them make a significant difference in both immediate and long-term outcomes in children with bronchiolitis. But we're really kind of powerless to alter the disease course of bronchiolitis significantly. So I think it's important to think about which kids are most worrisome. In general, those younger than 42 to 44 adjusted gestational age weeks or those born with congenital heart disease are much higher risk for apnea. And in my practice and in those of my colleagues, these are tiny little babies that will come in having apneic spells. They won't even get to the roncherous or wheezing phase. Assessing severity in bronchiolitis really takes repeated assessments of respiratory status, use of available data, and assessment of hydration status. 
you should get very good at talking to parents about the clinical course of the illness and providing excellent reassurance and education on suctioning the goal of making sure that they are booger-getting masters by the time their child leaves your emergency department. Teach them how to assess respiratory status. And if available, show them a video of a child in respiratory distress so that they know what tachypnea and deep retractions truly look like. All right, so that's all I have on bronchiolitis. Certainly, I could go on and talk about emerging therapies and making that differentiation between reactive airways disease and viral infections of the lungs, but I'll leave that one for another day. I'd be delighted to continue the conversation online. You can find me on Twitter at PemTweets and check out PemBlog.com for all your pediatric emergency medicine-related educational needs. Until next time, this has been Brad Soboleski for Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Yeah, yeah.